hello and welcome to the Cory Doctorow podcast. It's been a minute. I've been in lots of places and I'm about to go more places still. On the 22nd of September, if you happen to be in Modena, Italy, I will be live casting to the Dig Festival. And that night on September 22nd, if you happen to be in Los Angeles, you can catch me in person with my former student, Justin C. Key, a brilliant new writer whose debut short story collection, The World Wasn't Ready for You, comes out on that evening, and I will be helping him launch it as his interlocutor. I myself will be launching my book, The Internet Con, at Chevalier's Books, also in Los Angeles, on the 27th of September, along with my friend Brian Merchant, who will be launching his amazing new book about the Luddites, Blood in the Machine. On October the 2nd, I'll be in Boise with V.E. Schwab, Victoria Schwab, for her book launch and mine. And then I'll be in Milan, Italy, in person, at Wired Next Fest, October 7th and 8th. October the 16th, I will be in Minneapolis for the ACM Conference on Computer-Supported Cooperative Work and Social Computing. I'll also be doing a bookstore event while I'm there. And on October the 19th, I'll be in Charleston, West Virginia for the McCrate Lecture in the Humanities as well as a bookstore event. October the 25th, I will be live casting to the Edinburgh Futures Institute. So those are all the events coming up. If you go to pluralistic.net and click on the upcoming events link, you can get links to all of those. I know that's a lot. There's more coming with all these books out. I am doing a lot of travel and a lot of events. And like I mentioned, I've done a lot of travel. Yes, I was one of the people who got stuck at Burning Man, although not as stuck as others. We had a couple of sick campmates, and the medics thought that it would be a good idea to get them off the mud. One of them had a 4x4 with all-wheel drive and all-weather tires, and so I helped them drive it off the playa, and I got home to Los Angeles in time for Naomi Klein's launch of Doppelganger, which I did in person with her at the LA Public Library. And hello again to all the people who came up at the signing afterwards and said that you were podcast listeners. It was nice to see you. I also got to fly to Toronto for a great book event. Thank you to everyone who came out to another story on Roncesvalles for the book launch of InternetCon. But mostly what I went to Toronto for was to see the Talking Heads reunion at the newly remastered Stop Making Sense at the IMAX Theatre at the Scotiabank Plaza, for TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. I got to go as a guest of David Byrne. I got to sit in the same row as him. I got to chat with him and the rest of the band members at the after party, and I got to see the band in person, all together, under one roof, I think for the first time in public since they broke up, for an interview conducted after the movie by Spike Lee. The movie was incredible. Obviously, I've seen Stop Making Sense 10 million times. You may have too. If you haven't, you should go see it. But you should really go see it at an IMAX in the new print because holy moly, is it amazing. It was so frigging great. So that's mostly what's going on in my life. There is one other thing, which is my new book, The Internet Con, is doing quite well. In fact, it's doing slightly too well. The hardcover print run has now sold out. There's inventory at the distributors and inventory held back for all of my events, but it might be hard to get for a couple of weeks. Apparently, the publisher can't get any press time until the end of October, and so it might be like unavailable for two to three weeks. I am not happy about that, but it is one of the problems of the newly monopolized book market that the big five have bought all the press time well in advance and all the major presses and small and medium-sized presses like mine Verso struggle to get print time. 
And so, um, yeah, if you've got a first edition hardcover, treasure it because they're in scarce supply and they're not going to exist soon and you're going to have to wait for a second. Anyway, you know, kind of a mixed blessing. So now I'm going to read to you this week's podcast reading. It's uh, an article that I wrote for Locust Magazine, my latest column. It's called Plausible Sentence Generators. And as you'll hear, it's a story about my weird adventures with chatbots. And so here we are from the September issue of Locust Magazine, Plausible Sentence Generators. I was as surprised as anyone when I found myself accidentally using a large language model, that is, an AI chatbot, to write some prose for me. I was twice as surprised when I found myself impressed by what it wrote. Last month, an airline stranded me overnight in New York City when my flight to LA was cancelled due to an air traffic control snafu. The airline rep at the counter told me to try flying standby the next morning and promised me that, while he didn't have any vouchers for me, if I booked a hotel, the airline would reimburse me when I got home. It wasn't cheap or easy. Lots of us were stranded in New York that night. Every hotel room in Queens and Manhattan was taken, and the flophouse I found in Brooklyn had raised its prices to over $300 per night. Add two $70 taxis, and I was into serious money. So when I finally got home, and the airline told me that they had a policy of not reimbursing flyers who were stranded by air traffic control problems, I was pissed. When the airline rep held that position... Even after I explained that I'd been promised reimbursement by the airline, I was furious. So I decided to do something I'd never done before. I was going to take the airline to small claims court. I googled, how do you sue an airline in small claims court, and found myself at a website that laid it out neatly. First, try to resolve the issue with the airline. Check. Next, send a final demand letter. Finally, sue. More details to follow. Did I want any help with that final demand letter? I did. I wrote a draft letter. Now, I've worked for a campaigning law firm for 20 years, and I've seen my share of threatening lawyer letters in my day. I've even received many of these from the owner of a cyber arms dealer, from Gwyneth Paltrow's lawyer, from lawyers representing the owners of LAX's private luxury terminal, from Ralph Lauren's lawyer, from the Sackler opioid family's lawyers, and more. When you report on corruption among the rich and powerful, legal threats are just part of the job. My legal threat letter was pretty good, if I do say so myself. Factual, crisp, and very stern. I pasted it into the form and clicked submit, not sure what would happen next. The webpage warned me that I might be in for a wait of two or three minutes. When I came back to the tab a couple minutes later, I found that the site had fed my letter to a large language model, probably ChatGPT, and that it had been transformed into an eye-watering, bowel-loosening, vicious lawyer letter. Hell, it scared me. Let's get one thing straight. This was a very good lawyer letter, but it wasn't good writing. Legal letters are typically verbose, obfuscated, and supercilious. Legal briefs are even worse, stilted and stiff, and full of tortured syntax. 
This letter read like a $600 an hour paralegal, working for a $1,500 an hour white shoe lawyer, had drafted it. That's what made it a good letter. It sent a signal. The person who sent you this letter is willing to spend $600 just to threaten you. They are seriously pissed and willing to spend a lot of money to make sure you know it. Like a cat's tail standing on end or a dog's hackles rising, the letter's real point isn't found in its text. The real point is the threat display itself. Letters often constitute a signal that transcends their content. Take letters of reference that professors write for grad students. These are a fair bit of work, and the mere fact that a prof is willing to write one speaks volumes about their respect for the student under discussion. A university professor friend of mine recently confessed that everyone in their department now outsources their letter of reference writing to ChatGPT. They feed the chatbot a few bullet points and it spits out a letter which they lightly edit and sign. Naturally enough, this is slowly but surely leading to a rise in the number of reference letters they're asked to write. When a student knows that writing the letter is the work of a few seconds, they're more willing to ask, and a prof is more willing to say yes, or rather, they feel more awkward about saying no. The next step is obvious. As letters of reference proliferate, people who receive these letters will ask a chatbot to summarize them in a few bullet points, creating a lossy process where a few bullet points are inflated into pages of puffery by a bot, then deflated back to bullet points by another bot. But whatever signal remains after that process has run, it will lack one element, the signal that this letter was costly to produce, and therefore worthy of taking into consideration merely on that basis. The same fate is doubtless coming for scary lawyer letters. Once it becomes well known that these letters can be generated gratis by an anonymous robo-lawyer site, the mere existence of such a letter will no longer signal that the sender is willing to go to the mattresses for justice. It'll just mean that they know how to use a search engine. We've lived through this already. When I started my career in activism, groups like the one I work for were just starting to figure out how to use online forms to help people communicate with their elected representatives and with regulators seeking public comment. In those years, lawmakers and regulators treated these letters as strong signals, equivalent to the letters that people used to write by going to the public library and asking a reference librarian to help them figure out how to send a comment to an agency, or by rolling paper in their typewriters to fire off a letter to their elected rep, after first calling information to get the rep office's phone number, then calling the office to get the address. These letters were incredibly effective for a little while. Then, they weren't. The recipients figured out that letters were a lot easier to send and discounted their importance. We countered by drumming up more interest and then by building tools to help people call their reps and give them a piece of their minds. That too was effective and then waned as lawmakers discounted that signal too. Today, activists continue to innovate new ways to help people send an unmistakable signal to their governments, coordinating mass demonstrations and in-person meetings. SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild members slog up and down the picket lines in my neighborhood every day, baking under a blazing heat dome. ChatGPT can take over a lot of tasks that, broadly speaking, boil down to bullshitting. It can write legal threats. 
if you need 2,000 words about the first time I ate an egg to go over your omelet recipe in order to make a search engine surface it, a chatbot's gotcha. Looking to flood a review site with praise about your business or complaints about your competitors? Easy. Letters of reference? No problem. Bullshit begets bullshit because no one wants to be bullshitted. In the bullshit wars, chatbots are weapons of mass destruction. None of this prose is good, none of it is really socially useful, but there's demand for it. Ironically, the more bullshit there is, the more bullshit filters there are, and this requires still more bullshit to overcome it. I don't know if my robo-lawyer letter will get the airline to cough up the $439.85. After all, I just FedExed the letter today. The chatbot told me to do that. FedExes send a signal too. Of course. That's it. A little coda. They didn't pay, and I gave up. I just had too much else going on. I had a talking head show to see. Anyway, I'll try and talk to you next week, and uh, maybe I'll see you in one of those many places I'm headed to. See you soon. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>